welcome back to Naming in an AI Age with your Name Stormers team. Mike Carr and I are back again, ready to talk a little bit more about the analytical side of things um, for the name testing gold standard. Um, so this conversation has been inspired by some of our past clients, um, those who have hired us for the name um, creation and development and that kind of process, consulting process, but then also then to go into um, name testing, which we're just going to talk a little bit more about what that means. But we're going to jump right into it, if that's okay with you, Mike. You bet. So when thinking about name testing, and we'll go into in future episodes, kind of the details between the type one, type two, but how many names would you say is the ideal number when conducting market research testing? You know, that's a really challenging question to answer because so many clients come to us with different practices in place. But what we would recommend, and, and I'll share with you why and what hasn't worked for us, is you don't really need to start with more than a dozen. And some clients will say, well, we haven't will the list down. You know, we have 25 or 30 or 40 or 50. And we want to use some kind of a conjoint or max diff approach to let our customers whittle those names down. And we don't think that's really the best way to do it. First of all, most of those names or many of those names won't be available from a legal perspective. So what we will often do is pre-screen the names for trademark hits, web hits, dot-com usage, you know, common law usage. And we'll knock out a huge chunk of those, usually over half. And then there's always a risk associated with what's left, right? That every name then has, you know, some type of a, think about a stoplight, green, yellow, red risk assessment. And so the test, you don't want to test all high risk names or all low risk names. And so we typically would recommend, well, let's pick some names that look like you've got a pretty good shot at getting them through any kind of legal hurdles, registration hurdles, regulatory hurdles, and then maybe look at some names a little bit higher risk. And then you get down to maybe um, six to eight names is pretty ideal. The way we do testing, the way a lot of other folks do testing, it, it allows you to get, I think, more real world results back from the target. Some folks still feel that a monadic approach is the only way to go, which is you only present a single name to a single respondent. Uh, we don't prefer that for a variety of reasons. Um, but we do think if you try to test too many names, it just sort of negates the validity of the test overall because there's just too much confusion and there's too much bias created by the time they see that 13th, 14th name. So the maximum to, for us would be 12, the minimum would be three or four, and the sweet spot would be six to eight. That's so great that y'all also kind of guide that path, not making sure or making sure that there aren't too many High risk names, finding that right balance amongst those three to four or 12 names. Um, can you walk me through the namesummers research process? So if a client were to enter a contract for that market research, how what are your first couple of steps and what are the key process points? I think probably one of the, the biggest things anybody that's doing this to think about is how do you present the name in as real world a context as possible? Mm. We've seen some folks that like to do a focus group and they'll put each name up on a 
two foot by three foot whiteboard, all in the same font and all in black without any context. And so their first exercise is people sit around a table and you throw up a name and you say, what does this name remind you of? Or what do you associate with this name? And I quite frankly, just think that's a total waste of time because no one ever sees a name without some context wrapped around it. So the most important thing is to establish what's that context going to be. So like if it's a product that's going to be in a brick and mortar retail store, can you show it on a dummied up package, right? How would it actually look on the box? Um, if it's a digital offering, can you portray it digitally, whether that's on the homepage or the, the first screen you see on your app or whatever that might be, hopefully with some, some graphic elements, right? Maybe your color palette, maybe your picture, uh, an ad mock-up. It doesn't have to be perfect, but whatever you can do to sort of help it bring alive for the respondent so that when they give you their feedback, they're giving it to you based upon the context in which they actually are going to see the name or hear the name or talk about the name versus something that's very artificial and very abstract. So that's that's like the foundation of the research. If, if we can't do that, I'm not sure all the other things we're trying to do are really going to be worth worth it. I can keep going, but if you have specific questions that you want to ask me, far away. Yeah, I know you've talked about there are several companies that'll do the system one, but we in particular do the system one, system two. How did y'all decide to implement that specific research technique? All right. So this comes from Daniel Kahneman's book of of years ago, you know, thinking fast, thinking slow. And you know, I think he won a Nobel Prize for that book, or at least some of the research that he's done. And, mm -hmm. and it basically, to me, the way I think about it is, you know, we, we tend to be lazy people and our brain, our brain especially likes to do things the easy way. So, and it's sort of built into our brain and our evolution, right? That it wants to free up as much of the brain's horsepower for the things that are really, really important. And the brain uses a disproportional amount of the energy the body consumes so the less juice it uses the better because that keeps energy for all kinds of other things so this idea that look we're lazy creatures and anything that can be dealt at the subconscious versus the sub the conscious level is the default and that's what system one thinking is all about that for many things we don't consciously think about them we simply react to them and that's the way naming works very few people that we've ever talked to consciously think about, well, do I like this name or not? They don't. They just, they see a name and they either react to it positively or negatively. And if it grabs them, they may pick up the box or they may pay a little bit more attention to the ad and they click through the website. And if it doesn't grab them, they're gone. And it's like a second or two. And so what we do in our research is we measure that. We, we look at how quickly, in what order, and some other things so we can get a, an assessment on, is this name working at that subconscious level, which is the most important level? What most people do uh, is they ask questions like, well, do you like this name? Does mm -hmm. this name fit the positioning? And those aren't terrible questions to ask, but you have to understand that 99.9% .9 of your customers will never ask those questions. And as soon as you ask those questions, you then move into the system two thinking, which is that more rational, deeper pondering. And this is somewhat dependent on the price of the item, right? If you're if you're buying a $10 or 
or $20 sort of impulse purchase at the grocery store. Yeah. Not a lot of thought goes into that. Mm -hmm. If you're buying a, an automobile or you're buying a $5,000 mattress, it's going to be a more considered purchase. And so that's when I think those more system two questions are really valid, right? That you still want that system one. You still want the name to quickly grab you, grab the target so that you can then tell the story or you can bring them in and have them further investigate the product. But then you know they are going to be thinking more about the product, its attributes, its benefits, and perhaps even the name. And so that's why both system one and system two are valid, but the weight you give each one varies based upon the product, the price point, and a lot of other things. And we have our beloved Kay Sefkin leading up, heading up these research um, projects. So how she's talked about how AI is going to be playing a role. What has she been kind of um, diving into exploring in terms of chat GPT and GTP and different um, platforms? Right. So she's, you know, she comes from a, a coding background. So she knows Python and uh, chat GPT or some of the AI tools out there generate Python code. And so we have the API. Um, I think any company that's serious about using AI is going to get the API and actually do some programming, do some testing with their own data. Uh, where we found it most useful is in analyzing verbatims on research, right? Mm -hmm. So when we conduct research, we'll often try to not get a sense quantitatively as to which names are scoring the best on different metrics. And some of those are system one, some of those are system two, but then the why, right? What is the thinking behind? And, and sometimes, and I think it's a very honest answer. Sometimes the respondent will say, they don't know why, <laughs> you know, I don't know why I this name just grabbed me. And that, boy, that is super legit, right? That's probably the most honest answer anybody can give us. I don't know why that name grabbed me. I just like it. In a lot of cases, they will explain it. Well, you know, I associate it with this, or it just is very appealing to me, or it telegraphs these benefits, which are important to me. And so when you get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those types of, of responses, uh, using an AI tool to go through them and, and, and sort of recap and summarize what are the themes that are emerging. Uh, when we do side-by-side -side testing, like when we use AI to do that, and then we use a person to do that, AI is getting pretty darn good. I don't think it's a replacement for the person, but I do think it's a great starting point, right? That you can you can run a lot of those verbatims through. You can get some sense as to, okay, here are the themes that are emerging so that when you read the verbatims yourself, which I think you always need to do to understand the gist of the research and, and what the real insights are, you can either valid, you can either verify or say, well, I'm seeing something else that I think ChatGPT or the, or the, uh, the Python uh, model that we are, we're using missed, right? So it's a great tool there. The other thing we're doing with it is since we've been, we have data for naming for 35 years, I don't know how many thousands of projects we have um, a variety of data, you know, old creative notes, whatever. We may, we may try to feed some of that into the model and see if we can improve its ability to come up with names based upon a lot of the naming work that we've done over the years. Uh, some of that's proprietary to a client. We can't use it. A lot of it's not. And we we wrote some software tools in an earlier episode. I think I talked about back in the 80s uh, on both DOS and Windows. So we've, we have roots in writing software for naming. We've been doing it off and on for decades. Um, we are fascinated and interested about the new capabilities that AI brings to the table. And so we'll probably be playing around with that a little bit more too. 
If you're a new listener, I encourage you to go back to our first episode, first two episodes, and hear Mike talk a little bit more about those AI platforms. Some of the first platforms, products, software programs that that introduce a AI, not as we know it today, but certainly as it was in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, well, this has been super interesting. I'm excited to dive more into the topics discussed in that Think Fast, Think Slow book, um, which we will in a couple of episodes. You'll hear a little bit more about the system one, system two, and how that thought process is rationalized. Um, but thank you so much, Mike, for for talking a little bit more about our market research process. And um, we're excited. Next week, we'll be talking more about the global naming trade-off. So we've mentioned that we offer um, and make sure that our names are screened and available for our clients. But what does that look like when you are expanding from a U.S. domestic product or service to a larger scale international launch? So I'm excited to dig into that with you. Have Absolutely. a great Bye, Mike. See ya. Bye-bye.